Welcome to the Apologetics.com radio show, where we challenge believers to think and thinkers to believe. I'm Harry Edwards, your host for the evening, and joining me in the studio are my good friends, Lenny Esposito and Dr. Jacob Daniel. How are you guys doing? Good morning. Good. Very well. Thank you. And we have a very special guest, uh, but before I introduce him, I'd like to first introduce our topic for tonight. Uh, It's going to be an important one. And it is coming off the, I guess, the buzz from the recent Republican debate, if you want to call it a debate. Uh, I know some of us have experience in actually doing debates or even attending debates, but this is a little bit different, right? I mean, uh, they only have like one minute to build their case uh, and uh, 30 seconds of rebuttal. And it's kind of tough when I guess you have eight uh, candidates and all of them have good things to say, hmm. but uh, so I don't know if we want to call it a debate, but uh, that's what they call it. Well, let's call it Twitter. <laughs> Twitter, <laughs> Twitter version of a debate. Yeah, it was. It was. Uh, yeah, Fight Club. Maybe I don't know. <laughs> um, so the the topic for this evening, uh, we kind of massage this to to make it just right, but I, I think it's the right. Uh, the right way to say it. So the topic is, what role does faith play in politics? So my guess is a lot of us are have been tuned into uh, just the recent political uh, goings-on in our country. I know our America is deeply divided as in any time since just before the Civil War. Yeah. I really think so. Yeah. Uh, one of the candidates actually said, we're in a cold Civil War. And I, I thought, I think he captured That's that. That's an interesting Yeah, cold Civil it, yeah. War. Not, you know, mm. not, not, not a cold war. war. You're not a cold war, but a cold Civil War. Um, and uh, unless you've been hiding in a cave, you know this is true. You know, you feel it. Um, we have different visions on how to achieve human flourishing. And so uh, one of the questions I posed uh, to the fellows this evening is, why would a, an apologetics ministry care about addressing topics such as the one we're going to be addressing tonight? And, and that could form the basis of our discussion tonight, gentlemen. Why? Why do we care about politics? After all, we're an apologetics ministry. Aren't we all about defending the faith? I mean, that's the proper definition of apologetics, yeah. right? And, and before you guys answer that, let me introduce uh, our special guest. Uh, he's special because he's got his own mic, own headphones. I love it. <laughs> Typically, that's, that's uh, scarce, you know, and... <laughs> We have a, a third person here, but uh, Larry uh, Roffling is with us, and uh, Larry is a practicing lawyer, and he leads a boutique nine-attorney law firm in Santa Fe Springs, specifically and specializing in social security disability. And Larry is the attorney of record in over 30 published options, opinions, sorry, 30 published opinions from the Ninth Circuit and lost 9-0 and before the U.S. Supreme Court in 2003. I, I had to ask uh, Larry, Larry, why did you want to put the, that, that bit of information there that you lost 9-0? and But hey, but he argued before the U.S. Supreme Court. I mean, that's just amazing, right? I mean, 
I, we, we can talk more about that. Maybe that's another show. Uh, but but Larry, uh, Larry also goes to the same church uh, where I go to. He's served as an elder there for 20 years, and he teaches Bible study. He loves the Lord, and uh, I am honored that I know him, and he's a friend. Welcome, Larry. Thank you, Harry. Thank All right. You. It's uh, a pleasure to be here. So he's going to be our expert tonight, right? No, no, no pressure there, Larry. But uh, Larry loves this sort of stuff. That's why I ask him, hey, Larry, would you be on the show? And while we were driving here, you know, I go, Larry, are you bringing anything with you? I notice you're bringing nothing with you. <laughs> Not like we have to bring all of our stuff. And Larry just has everything in his mind. He's just that amazing and smart. So he's a walking encyclopedia. <laughs> When when people speak, if they bring something with them, they read. And nobody likes being read to. <laughs> Is that like a lawyer joke or something? No, it's just an observation after speaking publicly for almost 40 years. Yeah, there you go. There you go. So anyways, guys, gentlemen, why are we as an apologetics ministry, why do we care about church and state stuff, faith and politics? Do they have anything to do with each other? Uh is this just a waste of time? Uh, or do people care? Do Christians care? Or why should Christians care? Well, I think that part of the issue is, uh, first of all, apologetics, I think, is more broadly than simply responding to objections, which some people think that that's what the idea of defense is. But but really, a, uh, a good, and I'm sure Larry can speak to this, the idea of defense apologia is the defense, say, a trial lawyer would make for his client. And sometimes that's offering an alternative argument, uh, you know, in, in order to show the truth of the matter, to give a, a second viewpoint. Also to make sure that the ground soil is fertile for the gospel. And Tertullian did this when he responded to the emperor saying, look, it's your policies that are problematic because your laws are castigating Christians, yet Christians are your best citizens. They're better than the other guys. So in Tertullian's apology, he went to the center of abuse and called it out, and that was part of the, his apologetic. So we have a long history in uh, apologetics of not merely defending the faith from, say, intellectual challenges, but also from social challenges, from moral questions that may affect the believer as well as the general welfare of all image bearers of God through the policies and the procedures that candidates who will, one of whom, be it Democrat or Republican, will lead the country for the next four years. So it, it's crucially important for us to be involved in this process. And fundamentally, God is a God of order, and he is the author of all governance, starting with self-government, family government, church government, and civil government. And scripture is very clear about that. And in terms of apologetics, uh, we the scripture we go to is First Peter 3.15. It says, set apart Christ in our heart, right? Mm -hmm. That's the first step. And who is Christ? He is the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. Yeah. And this, therefore, we go and make disciples of all nations. I'll, I and, would also yeah, say yeah. that Romans 13 commands us specifically because Romans 13 says that those the government is not given the sword for nothing, right? Yeah. That, that, and if you understand the foundation of the United States, 
who is the ultimate authority in the United States? It's not a king. Hmm. It's we the people. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that again is a product of reformation. Exactly. Priesthood of all believers. Yeah. Right? Uh, and I think it's important for us to understand that's the distinction that has to be clearly maintained that people uh, question the government without realizing that they themselves are, are, the, the, government. are the government. That's, right. That's why it's important for us to be asking. I love the definition yeah. that I first heard from you, Harry, uh, about politics. What is politics? Applied ethics. And the question before a Christian is that whose ethics are you going to apply? Just like John the Baptist. He wasn't bringing any doctrinal issue before Herod. He was bringing a biblical ethics to a pagan king. And we're called to do that even today. Right. Even it would mean that you might lose your head for that. That's right. And I want to say even, I believe, Jesus himself, at part of his teachings, uh, was very pro-government during a time mm -hmm. when they were killing Christians. Um, give unto Caesar, yeah. Give unto Caesar. That's an explicit teaching uh, because it belonged to him. Right. Anyways, yeah. But I, I love that uh, Jesus didn't stop there. He took the opportunity to actually add something that's more important and, and render it to God, which is God's. Uh, and so. another question before us is that who decides what Caesar gets? And Jesus reminds Pilate that you have no authority that is not given to you. Yeah. Right? So even Romans 13, we need to understand that God calls the civil magistrates his deacons, and they've mm. been given the sword of justice, whereas the church has been given the sword of word. Church yeah. deals with sin matters, state deals with crime matters. Not every sin is a crime, but every crime is a sin. Therefore, church has a right to actually mentioned to the civil magistrate how they should conduct yeah. themselves. Mm. And, and the Point. civil, right, we, we, we call them public servants yeah. there to serve the public. That's the yeah. praise. I love it. I love it. Um, so there are certain concepts that I, I definitely want to cover here. Uh, uh, I, again, all of this came about because of the uh, Republican debate. You know, a, a lot of good issues, I have to say, came out of that. In fact, I almost regret watching the uh, pundits with their uh, editorials first mm. before I watch the debate because I became a little bit biased, but I'm happy it, it didn't overcome you know, me. Uh, is the, it, is, the, isn't yeah. it interesting that two things we've been saying, don't talk in public religion and uh, politics, and those are the two things we broadcast. Yeah. <laughs> so there you go. Only here at apologetics.com, right? <laughs> yeah, and, and that's a good point, Jacob, right? I, I think a, a lot of our illiteracy comes from that bad saying. Yeah. yeah. It's. I think Chesterton said, what are the things are worth talking about? Nothing else is worth talking about yeah. but politics and religion because yeah. they're the only two things that have long-term effects on individual and corporate lives. So. Yeah. I think we can't really minimize or uh, overstate the damage that that has caused, right? Mm. I, it's, it permeates family gatherings, permeates the church for sure. Um, now, I, I'm proud of our pastor, all right? Shout out to uh, Pastor Jason because he doesn't shy away from some of the things and he preaches from the pulpit on mm. on issues where it might, the, the two might blend, but really it is faith matters such as abortion. Right. Now we think it's a purely political thing, but really, no, that's that's a moral thing. And, and many others, right? Uh, it, I think with yeah. or major issues in uh, politics or with regards to governance, we should remind ourselves that important issues of life have a protology, right? It goes right as, as part of first principles that God has established. So just labeling them as politics 
would undermine them, I believe. I think we should be looking beyond that and say that who is the author of these things that we want to bring into public discussion and debates yeah. and engaging with each other so that we can actually create a virtuous society. Yes. So let, let's touch on that. Why do you think, uh, let's uh, stick with the American uh, culture. Why do you think politics has garnered such a bad connotation that it is to be avoided somehow? And that we, we only talk about it during election times or uh, if, if we were in the mood to quarrel, you know? I mean, why, why is it such a bad thing? So if politics is just merely applied ethics, right? And I'll, I'll stick with that definition. That's good enough. Uh, what, what's so wrong about politics? Why, why has it gotten a bad rap? What do you guys think? Politics is, is contentious. It uh, affects the core of who we are and how we relate to one another. And when... I challenge your orthodoxy, I challenge your thought process, your worldview, then I have assaulted your, your core being, and, and that leads to the Cold War, the Cold Civil War, Cold Civil that, War. That, you just, that you mentioned earlier. And uh, the application of ethics is, is the only reason to actually function in society. How will I function? Uh, Hobbes wrote that life in a state of nature is nasty, brutish, and short. And so if we want to live in a world that is not nasty, brutish, and short, then we need to figure out how this social contract is going to play out. And the terms of the social contract need to be found in Scripture, that we love our neighbor as ourself. Mm, that's right. Yeah, I love that. That is the foundation, really, for politics. Uh, if we're all in this together, you know... Um, then we got to find the right path. What is the best best path forward? I guess. Yeah, yeah. there there does seem to be a a way though that people kind of find their self identity in some of their political positions, and those aren't formed from the inside out though. They're always formed from the outside in. So it's it's like what party am I part of? And we've we've witnessed this even in the course of my lifetime where it was. Um, it used to be the Democrats were the, you know, ones who would hold to certain aspects and ideas like, um, they were always big government, but they, they were always about, you know, not allowing people to do certain things, government registration, regulations and restrictions. And now all of a sudden with say the Dobbs decision, uh, they're saying we should not have any governmental bonds against abortion at all. We should allow it to happen and, and or free speech, you know, don't ban these kinds of uh, diversity, equity, inclusion teachings in campuses. And, and whereas the Republicans would have, you know, said no to the opposite or. In the 60s, the Democrats were very much a free speech, say anything you want, wherever. Now it's, hey, you can't uh, trigger somebody. You can't. And so you're starting to see these things reverse. And it's not that people have come to some kind of realization after, you know, uh, adjudicating this within themselves. It's their party shifted and they're just simply following the winds of whatever their party is. Yeah, but that's their identity and they will fight you when you resist that, even though that may be something that they would have held and opposed 
20 years ago. I, I think that's fascinating to see. Yeah, and I think uh, there's an aversion to politics because of this one um, idea that we have somehow adopted within the church of radical two-kingdom theology. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What has happened is that we have dissected uh, between two kingdoms, the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God, radical two kingdoms, right? Instead of seeing that Christ has all authority, there is one authentic kingdom all of the kingdoms are counterfeit kingdoms that are called to submit to the final authority of the king of kings, Jesus Christ. And I think adopting that two kingdom theology does the damage where you push uh, some of the scriptures to the future. For example, um, uh, uh, in Isaiah, we read during Christmas time, right? Wonderful counselor, mighty God. And we stop there. We never say that of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. What about Lord's Prayer? We pray about, give us this day our daily bread, but when it comes to thy kingdom come, thy will be done, we push it to the future yeah, because right. of this radical division between the two kingdoms. And I think that's a problem within the church that would always keep politics uh, far yeah. beyond and the reach of would, church. Would you add to that the strict separation of church and state as well, right? Would that, uh, that, that just muddles things even further? No, so, so no? when we... Okay. So it's a biblical idea, sphere sovereignty, the separation between church and state. It's a biblical idea. But when we say there's a separation between church and state, we don't mean there's a separation between God and church and God and state. Right. God remains sovereign over both spheres. Though, the I don't want the Caesar to come and tell me what hymns to sing this Sunday. Right. Neither do my church pastor to come and tell me which side of the bed I should sleep on. Well, that's why I said right? strict separation. Right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Strict separation. Right? Yeah. Well, the, 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 the separation between church and state uh, is a phrase that, that construes the First Amendment, but, it, but it, that, that's not what it says. It's right. that Congress shall make no laws establishing. It's an establishment clause. Yeah. The road, the prohibition runs one way. Right. Yeah. There is no prohibition to the church injecting itself into the body politic. Hmm. That's a good point. So when, uh, what's the history behind that phrase, separation of church and state? What, why was that, it became a common thing? Well, the, the Puritans came to Massachusetts in the 1640s. Uh, other religious groups uh, fleeing Europe, fleeing uh, religious oppression because they were the wrong denomination. Uh, this comes out of the history of, of Henry VIII, uh, establishing the Anglican Church and the war between the Anglicans who became Protestants and they're neo-Catholic actually, but and the, and the Catholics. And so uh, all of my folks hate all of your folks. And so the Catholics hate the Protestants, Protestants hate the Catholics. And so uh, if, if we have a, a large number of denominations, and we clearly have a large number of denominations, by the time you get to to the uh, 1780s, 1790s, which denomination do you pick? Hmm. Yeah. Uh, are you confident that your denomination has everything in Scripture right? And if if you're not confident that your 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 denomination has every every denomination right, then maybe we should be looking more closely at other denominations and and trying to figure out more precisely because. We are not in the process of of jumping on a horse that rides down the correct path. We are in the process of maturity in Christ, which is we have to change. 
And the, the reason the, we have the, to change is because we don't have it right. And exactly, yes. That's why uh, even with one of the candidates during the GOP, one of the objections that I had was the emphasis on revolution. You needed a revol revolution to form a nation. Yeah. Now you have a nation, you got to reform it. Yes, you have to enter into yeah. that process and let the process take its course. And I think America had taken that, but somehow we are interrupting that. And one of the reasons we are interrupting that is because of our lack of understanding of what right kind of politics is. I think so, I think yeah. you're right. Uh, lack so, of just basic education even. Uh, we just don't read enough, we don't know yeah. enough, we don't care to know. Uh, even just civic, basic civic education. So, so to your yeah. to your specific question, uh, the phrase "separation of church and state" comes out of a letter that Thomas Jefferson wrote to the Denbury Baptist Church. Denbury Baptists were complaining, and this was 1802. The Constitution was well established, 1787, with the Bill of Rights. Both the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause are embedded in the first matter of fact the very first of the first amendment right it's considered our first rights mm -hmm. uh freedom of religion and people forget that they talk about the first amendment like everything's equal no the religion was ahead of press it was ahead of even free speech it, it, it's the first of our free that's a good point yeah our freedoms uh, but the baptists were worried because they were the underdogs in the in the, the they were the new guys on the block and in that point in time matter of fact this is why joseph smith went into the woods in Palmyra, New York, because he had a Methodist and a Baptist uh, churches, right? One parent was going to one, one parent was going to the other. And he goes, which were And they wouldn't shop at each other's stores. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was that divided even within Christendom. So, so this is, you know, Joseph Smith is saying, you know, which one is right? And from his tale, oh, none of them, they're all an abomination. But the Baptists are feeling that in Virginia as well. They're writing to Thomas Jefferson making sure that the state isn't going to crush them. And Jefferson tries to assure them, no, 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 there's a wall of separation between church and state. However you want to exercise your faith, a man and his God, that's up to you. Yeah. And, and, but now it's it's usually spun backwards. Mm -hmm. uh, just as Larry said, it's, 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 it's only restrictive in one direction, although what everybody tries to say is, and they try to leverage the establishment clause to make it sound like the government is establishing the church. The problem with that, of course, is that all law is moral. And there's no way that you can escape a moral foundation if you're going to make law, and government does not provide a moral foundation. Gov government should follow a moral foundation. Yeah, every law is a legislation of morality That's of right. some form. Let me add to this. I mean, you mentioned Jefferson, and initially it, the way the declaration was drafted was uh, they said that we hold these truths to be sacred. Mm. Not self-evident, sacred. That was actually accommodated later as self-evident. But we, we got to remember this, though, from its very inception, it was very theistic, not even the deistic, right? Yeah. Yeah, sure. We hold this truth to be self-evident that we all are created equal, endowed with inalienable rights. A deist God can create but cannot in, endow inalienable rights. Yeah, you need a theist point. to do that. Right. So from even from the very beginning itself, the founders understood the, the root of flourishing society, life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness has to be grounded in the fact that we all are created equal in the image of God. And that's a revelation, not a con construct that a nation has come up with. That's why from its very inception, America is founded on those principles and and. and yeah. Governance of a nation flows out of that. That's why American exceptionalism 
stands unique compared to any of the constitutions around the world. Right. Hey, Jacob, I want to uh, uh, cover this question that you posed a while ago. So related to what you just said, is voting then a privilege? Mm-hmm. Uh, how should a Christian participate in a republic? It might be good for our listeners to actually know what we're talking about in terms of like we're uh, do we have an per- obligation to that's vote? That's right. We're purposeful about yeah. saying republic, so yeah. we're not yeah. a democracy. No, we're no, not. We're not. We're a republic. That was done on purpose too. Right there, you go. <laughs> what is the difference? Well, a democracy is majority rules, and you're you're stuck with a tyranny of fifty plus one in, in in any democracy. And it's it's fascinating to see how many people claim, oh, he hates a democracy. Well, democracy uh, means that the rule of the mob. Uh, attains. Republic means that you elect representatives who can study the issue and decide on the basis of understanding their constituency what would be the best way forward, looking at all the dynamics and all of the law. The distribution of power. The distribution of power, absolutely. But they are answerable to their constituency. And also submits to, I think, uh, in the framework of a nation, a republic would be something um, that would submit to a higher law. Right. With regards to American Republic, you you do not pledge your allegiance to the president for a reason. You have a constitution that right. submits to the higher law of the law of God. And and uh, even today, if I'm not wrong, 90 percent of American laws can still be found to have its origins in the scriptures. Mm-hmm. Right. That's and right. not just any other scripture, but in the Bible. Well, it still just, speaks into it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. If you just look at our money, if you take a walk in, uh, on Washington, D.C. streets, monuments, you'll see. It's very obvious. Yeah. There's a lot of reference to Scripture. And there is uh, the idea of we the people has its origin, as I mentioned earlier, in the very fact that uh, through Reformation, the very idea of priesthood of all believers, everyone yeah. has a role and responsibility individual to participate. equality yes exactly yeah, that's didn't exist in the ancient world and also it's it's built on the fact that we all are breathing the same air right and if you are it does matter in terms of what policies you bring about um what kind of uh, you know uh, constraints you put around what it means to be a nation and things like that so that's why i think every um, person who is able has a privilege to participate in that. And voting is one of those privileges that one has. That's right. Okay, do I hear the music? It's coming on pretty soon. I know we are coming up on a station break, but uh, we have been talking about faith in politics and specifically the, our theme for this evening is what role does faith play in politics? We're coming up on a station break. We'll talk to you after the break. Let's get back to the Apologetics.com radio show. Welcome to the Apologetics.com radio show, specifically the second half hour of our show, where we challenge believers to think and thinkers to believe. Our topic for this evening is what role does faith play in politics? And again, a lot of this was sort of uh, thrust upon us because in our collective minds, you know, we're thinking about uh, the Republican debate and, 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 and the, uh, the, the people, the presidential hopefuls and, and their ideas 
uh, we've heard a lot of them, and a lot of them are exciting. You know, uh, each of them was tasked to give a vision for America, and uh, these are all good things. And uh, I thought it was exciting, actually. So, uh, gentlemen, we want to get really specific about some of these, uh, and we hear a lot of these kinds of talks uh, around our circles, and some of them are helpful, some of them are not very helpful. Uh, like, for instance, the whole principle of voting for the lesser of two evils. What do you guys think of that principle? Is Because I, I heard somebody say, well, don't vote for evil. Yeah. And, and they, they miss the whole modifier that lesser of two evils. And they keep they, they never see that. They go, don't vote for evil. It's not good. And, and practically what happens is they just check out and they don't vote. They, right. they think it's just a corrupt yeah. thing and, and politics is dirty. Right. So I'm, I'm not going to vote. I don't care. Yeah. So there, there are two things. I think one is that there is a deception uh, of um, um, the idea of seeking perfection here and now. Yeah. The whole idea of presentism, right? Uh, justice now. Uh, there's no process involved in it. I need to have it right, right here and right now. And I think that's what we are seeking. We are seeking perfection in individuals here and now. And you, you're never going to find that, right? So we choose between two people. Uh, I think Osgin has said it once. Um, uh, contrast is the mother of clarity. So if you have two candidates, you make a contrast between them and you have more clarity in terms of where you should go. And yeah. I think that's the principle. It's, of the a, it's a mistake of, of really understanding the nature of politics, which is the nature of comp. Right. I mean, because if you look at, even if you take the word politics itself it, down to its root, poly, it just means many, and ticks are blood sucking parasites. So <laughs> that. That's what you're going to get, right? So, but, but politics, it, there was an old story about Reagan and Tip O'Neill. Um, during the Reagan era, Tip O'Neill, of course, was the Speaker of the House Democrat strong man uh and reagan had always had to battle the democratic house of representatives in the democratic congress and they had said you know yeah i'm gonna go and i'm gonna make my sound bite and and position this for my constituency you go make your sound bite and then but now sooner or later we have to roll up our sleeves and actually get to work in making a compromise and compromise is the essence of the political system you're always going to be moving towards a goal but not necessarily getting there immediately because the, you, the public has to kind of come along with you, right? The, even slavery didn't change immediately. It, you, you had the uh, Missouri Compromise and all the, and some of those people will argue that some of those led to the Civil War because entrenched viewpoints wouldn't be moved. And post-Civil War, it was a disaster as well. But you have to, it took 100 years at least for the public's mind to be changed enough to where now we would all be in agreement that slavery is more than simply a political it, issue. I th I'll, I'll try to make this connection. I think uh, as Christians, we would understand that discipleship is a process. It's ha it happens through sanctification yeah. in individuals' life. When Jesus calls us to make disciples of nations, this aspect of collective discipleship, that is also a process. It's a process of sanctification. And I think politics is a good means of accomplishing that if we establish righteousness through our leaders. So, I, Lenny, uh, oh, go ahead, Larry. I think ahead. it's uh, yeah, it's yeah. also important to understand that, that Jesus isn't on the ballot. Hmm. <laughs> and if Jesus is not on the ballot, then, then, then my choice is a sinner and a sinner. Yeah. Those are my choices. And so 
whether you agree with the person or not, you're voting for a sinner. We're all sinners. And it's only when we adopt the humility of of our own failings uh, and we come to this process of which which one of these candidates most mirrors my view of how of what would Jesus do, right? And so it's something like that that leads to an informed decision of which direction this politic should go. Yeah. And I was going to add, no matter what we do, no matter how we approach this, in our current political system, one person will win. Yeah, And that's the thing. One person will be the president. And to not vote or to say that, uh, you know, I'm going to put Jesus on the ballot, I think another... I think it's egregious. I think it's a wasted vote. And uh, what, what do you guys think about that? <laughs> well, one of the things that I come through, I mean, again, when Paul wrote Romans 13, it was Nero who was the emperor. And he's saying, pray for him. That's right. He followed the government because God doesn't give him the sword for nothing. For nothing. And if God gives us the sword as the people who are in endowed to vote, then maybe we should choose between Nero and maybe, you know, somebody who's not Nero. (laughs) He'd still be a Roman, he's still going to be a Roman Caesar. He's not going to be a democratic stronghold guy. I mean, that's not going to happen. It's still Rome. But, you know, if he's not, if you have the choice between the guy who's burning you or aborting your children and not Maybe go with the one who doesn't. That's right. Uh, at the same time, yeah. Paul was, just to clarify, uh, and I, I know you're not saying this, but a lot of people assume this, Paul was not arguing for absolute submission. Oh, no. Right? If that was the case, it would be ridiculous. No, Acts that he 4. Was, he was killed for absolute submission, yeah. right? Yeah, because cause <laughs> so, we must obey God, yeah, right? We, exactly. we obey man when it's impossible, Peter yeah. and John. But and, we, and but Romans 13 does uh, clarify that. Yes. All authority is with God. Right. Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. The, I think the other really important point to remember is that change is always going to be a painful process. Hmm. Yeah. I don't really want to change, but the Holy Spirit commands me to change. I have invited the Holy Spirit to dwell with inside me, for not for the purpose of making me feel warm and fuzzy, but because I need to change. Yeah. And so what is one of the best ways of change? You, you mentioned uh, Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill. They are on opposite ends of this political spectrum, and they're grinding together. Yeah. Uh, Marx used the term the dialectic, and and but we get to a, a point of synthesis, and if we we accept the proposition that that neither side has it completely right, then a Republican uh, Congress fighting with a Democratic president or vice versa is actually going to lead to more of a a, a more palpable synthesis that that the pol- the body politic can then uh, uh, use, mm-hmm. uh, but when one party has all the power, uh, yeah. Betty hold the door. So I, I've got a I've got a question for you because this is, this would be within your um, area of expertise. That's the way government was framed to work. Recently, what we've seen though is people trying to bypass that by not going through the legislative process, but by going through the judicial process. So, so using the courts then to declare laws that are clearly laws, but oh no, you this is this is illegal, or you you can't ban transgenderism in this state because the judge 
holds a different point. So how do we deal with that now? How does how does our system, which was struck on an idea of checks and balances, work when now it's the judiciary that people are trying to leverage that are not appointed by the people and are not representing them in that in that way? Well, we have two components that are that are that are outside of the Republican form of government. Uh, the the judiciary is one, and the other one is the administrative state. Mm. And so people yeah, use point. those those processes to get a result. And it doesn't matter whether you're on the right or the left. Both sides sure. use use the administrative state and use the uh, judiciary for their own ends. Uh, uh, Roe versus Wade, actually, Roe versus Wade was struck down in Casey. Uh, but the abortion being a federally guaranteed right, the super the super right was struck down. Uh, because it's just anti-constitutional. It's a-constitutional. There's no constitutional basis yeah. for it. Uh, but that doesn't end the, the abortion debate. It just transfers the abortion debate back to the states. The states. Because in the end, all politics is local. Right. And the people in California, by the way, just just a history point, Ronald Reagan signed the abortion law into into. Into yeah, existence yeah. House in California. signed no fault divorce. Yeah, the, right. Yeah. Some of his biggest mistakes. Right. Wow. So, um, yeah, the. Um, I, I'm sorry, I lost my point. But go ahead. Uh, no, you had a question. Well, the question is just oh. how how do we how do we overcome that then, when when the judiciary or the administrative state, which is which is definitely yes. a leviathan that's gotten out of control. Uh, be, Give us an example of how well, pro, uh, Congress gives a wide berth, say, to the uh, um, Department of Interior, the Department of um, of um, oh, I can't remember the industry uh, workforce and things like that. To so so, there's a lot of regulations and laws about what you can and can't do. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, that would be unconstitutional if it was passed by a legislature. But because it it's been it's kind of transferred those laws to the uh, subsets of the executive, executive branch, yeah. they can they can then expand it and do as they will. I, I think the problem is that is that Congress has lost its its uh, fortitude. Yes, Congress has refused to to pass laws because your member of Congress has to come back and explain to you why they voted for right. that, that crazy mm. law, and they. They transfer the authority to the EPA or the or the Department of Interior or the Department of Education, hmm. and the depart and those de those administrative states now enact through the regulatory process uh, laws because the regulations have the force of law that are unpalpable. And so when your member of Congress comes back to you and asks for your vote, you say, "Hey, what about this? This seems ridiculous to me. This doesn't seem like this is what." what we bargained for in this social yeah, contract. How can, you, how can you call a wetland this area in South Dakota that has absolutely no water in it? Well, there, there was a tree that fell on the creek. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and it was, blocked it up for a, for a bit. And and your member of Congress says, oh, yeah, that wasn't me. That was the administration that mm. did that. You have to blame uh. the administration. And so there's this blame game that happens. Uh, and so whether it's the courts or the administrative state, uh, Congress gets to deflect blame to somebody else. And so you have nobody left to blame, which is why a large portion of the body politic are disaffected with the political process. Yeah. Because we don't have accountability because they blame it on the liberal judge. They blame it on the conservative judge. They blame it on the administrative state. And 
this leads to uh, and I, a, a feeling of, of hopelessness and helplessness, a despair. Unfortunately, it is up to the individual voter to hold his congressman to account, to say, you hold the purse strings. This is the whole point of Congress, is you are supposed to be the one that is keeping check on these other guys and pulling them back. And if the administrative straight goes crazy, you can say, well, we will defund you. And that is a legitimate move ever since the Constitution was founded. That's the structure of it. Nobody ever does that. Mm. Nobody's yeah. saying we should defund the IRS or the FBI for their investigative malfeasance. Mm. I mean, it's just that easy. That's what they're supposed to do. That's their role. But they won't do it because, as you say, they're, they're too afraid to make... Uh, a significant stand, uh, it might cost them a few votes. And and the omnibus budgetary process makes withholding funding from a single agency almost impossible to effectuate. Oh, they could do it. They could, <laughs> but what's what's possible for man is is yeah. uh, is often more limited than we would like to admit. We like to think that we have omnipotence, but yeah. there's only one that has omnipotence, <laughs> yeah. and that's God. Yeah. The, uh, and I think for our listeners, I think if if we see the gist of all this, and one of the geniuses of American's political system is uh, the spread of power, uh, it goes all the way to the individuals, right? And, and, and what happens at local level has its uh, effect at national level as well. That's why as individuals, it's so important for us to recognize that st strong household is Im as important as strong you know, representative up there in Congress. Uh, I think that has to be redeemed again, and people have to recapture the fact that as individuals, stepping into politics and being involved is as necessary as any other, you know, important issues in life. Yeah. I mean, I'm reminded of Senator Tommy Tuberville, who's holding up all of the promotions uh, within the Department of Defense and, uh, and the Pentagon. Um, Single-handedly, basically, He's exercising the power that he has mm. in Congress in order to make sure that some of this abuse, like, um, you know, making yeah. making uh, critical race theory endemic in the military and things like that, are are held to account. And I, I think that there's more of those opportunities available, but there's just not enough of a backbone to our representatives to do it. You know, all of the departments you're mentioning, what branch of the government do they fall under? Most of them are executive. Executive, branch. right? Okay. Yeah. So, like the whole executive, uh, uh, when the president makes an executive decision or something like that. I mean, like he's. No, he has cabinet members, and the right. cabinet members have have uh, subdivisions underneath them. Okay. So I I know that the so, president can do those executive. Uh, what do you call those things? Executive orders. orders. Executive yeah. orders. Yeah. Is there like a. Do they have to follow a, a certain criteria before that that becomes a thing? I mean, it be, it sounds so much like a king, uh, pro, you know, proclaiming a law, uh, fiat. Let, fiat. Let's let's just say that <laughs> Madison and Jefferson would be aghast at the number of uh, <laughs> uh, executive orders. Yeah, executive and the, and the power that the president, the executive branch wields far more power than they had initially yeah. imagined. It was Congress who was supposed to be doing That's these right, things, yeah. but. Uh, and, and Washington had a very small cabinet, right? He only had, uh, I think, two in his cabinet. So, and it, and it just continued to grow. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Uh, th there's this one phrase that uh, 
bugs me a lot, uh, especially when it comes to uh, election season, and that is the phrase, vote your conscience. What is wrong with that or what is right with that? Whatever. What, what are your thoughts on that? How, how could that be helpful or unhelpful? I think it's like saying in another way, you know, just I'm spiritual, I'm not religious. Mm. Religion is a spirituality with parameters. So when someone says I need to vote my conscience, the question is what par- by, by what parameters, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, so you may have a conscience that may go completely against what the scripture holds. Yeah. So if you're going by your conscience, you might may not honor the Lord. So is it grounded in the word of God? Is that's what's giving you the direction in terms of the decisions that you need to make for your neighbors? That's the ultimate question when it comes to voting. Are you loving your neighbors as God has commanded you to? Part of the problem with voting your conscience is you don't know how informed or uninformed you may be, and you may be voting truly for something that you believe is sanctimonious, or or, or, that's not the right word, maybe virtuous, Mm -hmm. but in effect will have the opposite effect. So, for example, let's take, um, I don't know, universal basic income. As an example, it sounds virtuous. Give everybody a leg up, give everybody. But in actuality, that's a really bad idea. We have money for a reason. Money was created for a reason because some people, and as we've shown decisively in any communistic country who's ever tried it, um, if you give everybody a basic set of income, first of all, it lowers the standard of income for all people. Nobody can thrive because people don't try to excel. They don't have any reward for excelling. And the ones who want to say, well, I'm going to sit in my hammock because I get the money anyway. Let him go out and work. They, they can do that. So it, it, it doesn't work in actuality. The, the people, there are people I've met who are very pro-abortion and they truly, they will tell you the, the stories about the woman who got in the back alley abortion and died. They will tell you the stories about the people who they really believe have been afflicted because they were, but they're not thinking of the child as a child. Or the real issue. Or the, so, yeah, yeah. so again, they're voting their conscience and even Christians will fall on this. <clears throat> you know, in surrogacy, you see many young Christian women becoming surrogate mothers thinking that what they're doing is a kindness, when in actuality they're perpetuating an industry that is ungodly. And they just don't, they see it as giving life, but they don't realize the, the ethical mess that the surrogacy industry is. So it's, it's a bad idea. Yeah. Yeah. I really don't want to be put in charge of making decisions about what is best for my life. It is truly um, um, the the German philosopher. Help me out here, Harry. Which one? Nietzsche. Yeah. Nietzsche. Friedrich Nietzsche. In uh, thus spoke Zarathustra yes. that that now that God is dead. Yeah. We're going to write new values on new tablets. Uh, I I lived my life as a hedonistic pagan until I was baptized at the age of thirty six, and I can tell you that if if you leave it up to me to write new values on new tablets, I'm going to write them in you know, such a way that are going to enhance my hedonistic pagan pleasures, mm-hmm. my pursuit of pleasures of the flesh, my pursuit of uh, power, money, and sex, which are the 
the three red flags of an ethical discussion or an ethical decision-making process that professionals engage in. Uh, voting your conscience is not asking what what would Jesus do or is this loving my neighbor as myself? Because if I truly love my neighbor, then I'm saying I am more interested in your enjoyment of the covenant with God than I am in my enjoyment of the cov- of the covenant with God. And I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure that you enjoy a covenant relationship, God, to my own detriment. Because, and we see this when Jesus goes to the cross. Right. He was willing to die for a, to save my wretched soul. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not going to vote my conscience. I'm going to vote the way that God has informed me to vote. Good. There's a uh, set of statistics I read not too long ago by put out by Pew Research. Um, it's uh, it's just the attitudes the church has toward the you know the subject of uh, politics. It says nearly two thirds of Americans uh, in a survey that say that churches and other houses of worship should keep out of political matters. Mm-hmm. Right. But then 36 say they should express their views on day-to-day social and political questions. So there's a part that says, no, we should. Here's an interesting one. But more than half of the public believes that churches and religious organizations do more good than harm in American society, while just one in five Americans say religious organizations do more harm than good. So just citing those numbers I feel like there's a disconnect yeah. a little bit, right? Yeah, so definitely confused. <laughs> right, it's confusing because one is saying we're not talking about politics enough. One is saying you're doing too much, but then a vast majority of them say no, it's a good thing. Yeah, and and so it is confusing. And so tonight, I know we have a few minutes before we end. Uh, what what are some good best practices that you know of, or you wish that? Uh, maybe churches in America today might employ so that uh, moving forward, especially in the upcoming elections next year, that we are wiser in our votes. Like, for instance, I know, um, I mean, just all metrics say that uh, America is just doing worse uh, on many metrics. Well, Uh, let's take California first, because it's an easy... Yeah, because we're all here. We're all here, and and, and the... Everybody knows the problems in California. It's fascinating. It didn't. When I used to travel and tell people where I'm from, the question that they used to ask was, "Have you ever seen met any celebrities?" <laughs> Nowadays, the question people is like, "How can you live there?" <laughs> That's right. what they ask. There, there are a gas that I could actually continue in California. Let's take homelessness, top issue. We know it's a problem. We know that the governor knows it's a problem. Everybody, right, in L.A., you know that it's a problem. Who more than anyone else understands homelessness? Who is the? Who are the ones who have the feet on the ground more? It's the rescue missions. It, it are the gospel-centered religious individuals who can understand who the homeless are. They work with them every day. How to treat them. What gets people out of homelessness. What's ineffective. They can, they can answer all those questions. Those need to be primary in a discussion. So if you don't 
necessarily have to say have the rescue mission say don't vote for this guy vote for that guy but you have to have them say if you want to deal with homelessness here's what you have to do and they can tell you whether turning a hotel into a residential block is actually going to change anything usually it doesn't because the bad behaviors that individuals have they bring with them to those and then those uh, uh home blocks become dangerous and slum just like and then more people feel safe out on the street again it's, so it's a, as an i would add this that as christians we should not seek redemption through politics yeah. we should understand that our politics needs redemption mm. and i think uh, we have to stop looking for a hill to die on uh, rather we live in light of the fact that we already died on a hill called calvary mm -hmm. and we believe in a resurrected christ who is interested in all aspects of our life including our politics which needs redeeming and as christians we got to be the salt of the earth and light of the world yeah. that christ has commanded us to amen to that any other good best practices or ideas one of the things i was some when when lenny was speaking is uh we have set up uh policies and programs with with good intentions of helping the homeless, helping the poor, but we set up programs where people become financially vested in maintaining the existence yeah. of that group of people that they're serving. And uh, we need to use an informed process that is Christ-driven to develop programs that help the needy, that solve problems among the, the mentally impaired, the the deeply impoverished that don't create a wealth mechanism for people taking advantage of the right. existence of those groups. Right. And the and the other the other problem actually with government driven programs like that is it robs individuals of the blessing and responsibility of generosity, of altruism, because it forces you through your taxes to give to these specific issues where you don't have a choice. And that's, that's the other half of the issue. One is definitely abuse, because when you have, we saw it with the COVID, we, you know, any, the payroll relief programs, you know, pick your, anytime there's a lot of money to be had, you're going to have a significant contingent who abuses it. But with the nonprofit industry, then it's all, the virtuousness can rise to the top. Well, the music is on. That means our time is up. You've been listening to Apologetics.com radio, where we challenge believers to think and thinkers to believe. Our hope is that you've learned some aspect about the Christian worldview that strengthens your faith and make you want to learn more. Special thanks to my panel this evening, Jacob, Lenny, and Larry. Uh, to our behind-the-scenes sound engineer, and a special thank you to you, our listeners. Until next time, good night. Broadcast of Apologex.com, sponsored by Apologex.com on 99.5 KKLA.